Have you ever worked remotely? If so, did you like being able to spend all day in pajamas, at least from the waist down? Did you feel a sense of freedom at not having to hurry into the office at a certain time? Or did you struggle with interruptions and distractions or feel like you had no separation between home and work? According to Riverbed.com, since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, 88% of organizations have encouraged or required their employees to work from home, at least some of the time. The practice of working remotely is becoming more and more prevalent. Meanwhile, different individuals experience and respond to remote work differently, and some industries respond well to a transition to remote work, while others don't and still others can't accommodate remote work at all. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I work from home and also rent a co-working space where I go several times a week to write. I found that it can be helpful to have a change of scene, and to be honest, I can get easily distracted when working from home. Before we delve into today's topic, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you today from the ancestral lands of the Lenape people and to thank Indigenous people past, present, and future for their resilience and their contributions to a nation that was built on stolen land using stolen labor. This is episode one of season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast, brought to you in partnership with Temple University's Fox School of Business Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, known as Sedwick. This episode is remote work, finding balance and boundaries between work and home. In the early part of the pandemic, when I was exclusively working from home, I'd logged 12 to 16-hour days, and as a result of that, I started suffering from burnout. Meanwhile, many of those closest to me have thrived in a remote environment. From my personal experience, research, and interviewing others, I've learned that just as with so many things, when it comes to working remotely, there are a multitude of different needs. What's important is to consider the needs of employees, employers, and clients, and to take steps to create a culture that promotes well-being both at work and at home. So remote work has been very hard, particularly for caregivers and working mothers, and every stat shows this. You know, women leaving the workforce in droves because it just became too much in order to manage your family and the workload and the expectations, the unrealistic expectations of employers And so I don't at all want to make light of that for the millions of women that it affected. I think for me personally, I was able to show up differently as a mother and a leader during the time of remote work. I hadn't realized how much the commute was weighing me down. I was late to everything. I felt like I was missing a lot of things and I was. And just the travel, the expectations, all of those things wrapped up. So I think that remote work has been really meaningful for some people and really helping them to be the kind of caregiver they want to be. And I think for others, it's just made it untenable. And I don't think this is a one size fits all, but I do think that the employers who can understand the role of remote work and flexibility will be the ones that can retain women and all employees for the long term. That was Shauna Hawking, a thought leader, keynote speaker, and writer with 20 years' experience working in leadership development, 
Shauna is the author of One Bold Move a Day and the host of the One Bold Move a Day podcast. Elaborating on the point she made about women in the workforce during COVID-19, Deloitte Global conducted a survey of 5,000 women across 10 countries, and nearly 80% of the 5,000 women surveyed reported that as a result of the pandemic, their professional workloads had increased. At the same time, 66% of women said their responsibilities at home had also simultaneously increased. Those that experienced the most significant increases were LGBTQ plus women and women of color. When I started digging into how experiences of remote work differ based on identity, I found that telework opportunities and remote work opportunities vary greatly by race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status. Approximately one in five Black workers and one in six Hispanic or Latinx workers have the option to work remotely, as compared to roughly one in three white or Asian workers. And 9.2% of workers in the lowest quartile of earnings have the option to work from home, which is staggeringly low when compared to workers in the highest quartile, 62.5% of whom are able to work from home. Remote work is a complicated subject. In some ways, it promotes equity for individuals with mobility issues or those who may benefit from more flexible work hours. But it also makes it hard for those who crave work-home separation, whose home lives are filled with interruptions and distractions, or who lack the agency to make decisions about how and when they work. That said, we shouldn't make assumptions about people's work capacity or experiences based on our own faulty preconceptions. Sabrina Volpone is an associate professor in the Organizational Leadership Division at University of Colorado's Leeds School of Business and a diversity researcher. She uses both qualitative and quantitative methods to understand how organizations manage their diverse workforces and how diverse individuals flourish through the management of their identities at work. Sabrina spoke about there being a variety of experiences for those working remotely during the COVID-19 pandemic. What we have seen from preliminary data and data that has been published is a lot of different, and I have some different examples, but a lot of different groups that would consider themselves in traditional, you know, marginalized groups or stigmatized groups have reported really positive outcomes from remote work. And so let me describe some of that because I know saying positive experiences in the same sentence as COVID or the pandemic is kind of a mind warp. For It's like, I certainly haven't, you know, <laughs> it's like masks and getting sick and increased childcare responsibilities when the school shuts down. It's like, I understand what I'm saying is a little bit of your um, listeners might kind of have a raised eyebrow right now. And I certainly understand that. But really putting ourselves into some of the shoes of what some individuals report as their daily or very common experiences in the workplace, women have reported that there have definitely been struggles and that their needs as workers and their needs to balance childcare and also elder care, 
responsibilities. That's a common experience as well that we don't talk about a lot, but the burdens that fall on them in society, balancing that with their work, you know, has always been a challenge that has increased as school shut down as caregivers, whether that's daycare, nannies, you know, whatever that looks like as those individuals get sick and have to take time off. That is well-documented. So I won't speak to that. But in addition to that, when there are more remote options, logging in via Zoom, saving an hour of time in your day, not commuting, that helps people better balance the demands that are put on them because it gives them more time. Another really good example, and I think we'll all agree that most Zoom interactions are a little bit more tailored to the agenda or the topic at hand, whatever the meeting is about. There, of course, might be some chit chat, but compared to the interpersonal exposure that a lot of groups report having, and uh, the term I want to use is microaggression. And of course, it can be more than microaggressions. It can be flat out discrimination or uh, it can be other things, but let's go with microaggressions. When individuals are interacting in a remote environment, there's not as much as those ambiguous interpersonal interactions that A lot of time, not always, but a lot of times it's where you find some of those microaggressions or there's not some of those implicit roles that people are implying that you take on. For example, a meeting starts and someone's like, where's the coffee? Someone who's a woman jumping up and, you know, the the boss kind of, you know, um, let's say they're a man uh, statistically, you know, let's just say that implying that that role should be filled by this kind of historical stereotype of the role that women fill at meetings. Those things don't happen via Zoom. They can still happen in other ways, but there is so much of that that is removed in a virtual environment that people in marginalized groups, and specifically here I'm giving examples of gender and maybe race as well, a lot of that's removed. Wouldn't that be a more positive experience if you're not having to filter those and recover from those and navigate those on a meeting by meeting, hourly, daily, weekly basis. Remote workplace interactions can, in some instances, reduce the likelihood of inappropriate off-the-cuff comments or subtle abuses of power and privilege. At the same time, there can be tremendous value to be had from in-person interactions among people with differing identities and life experiences. One option isn't inherently better or worse than another. It's interesting because my experience of working from home, both personally and sort of in terms of colleagues and friends, is that some people really like it and thrive in that environment and other people don't. And for myself, someone single who lives alone, I'm highly productive working from home, but I also can get very lonely and struggle with some mental health (laughs) issues as a result of working from home. Whereas my friends who have kids and families and what have you, they tend to struggle. And this isn't across the board, but anecdotally, they tend to struggle with getting as much done and being as productive and having kind of a work-life separation balance and tend to have a lot more joy because they're able to go to their kids' activities and sort of spend more time with their families. So I wonder if these things are very individualized and nuanced, but it's sort of interesting to think about 
for some working from home might seem like a benefit and for others it it doesn't i don't think i think that's a fantastic insight in fact you can you can actually take that because you identified two dimensions i'm an academic after all so the first one is personality right some mm-hmm. people will be more adept at using a different mode of working it's a different mode of working than others and we all know this some people have the discipline some people don't you know some people they need somebody looking over their shoulder and that's why they go to work because it provides structure and others would react extremely negatively if somebody was looking over their shoulder so we have a lot of diversity in individual personalities and that was all not hidden but masked ignored not relevant when work was only a one type so none of us had a choice we had to fit the work yeah. of one type right so that's personality but then the other dimension uh, which i think is interesting is that some tasks and some jobs are perhaps more amenable than others and as soon as i say that i'm sure you can think of job a that would be great and job b that probably wouldn't be right and some jobs are just it's impossible altogether i mean you can't deliver food working <laughs> I mean, yes, that's a remote work environment insofar as maybe the person doesn't have to go into an office. However, it's not something that you can do sitting in a chair from one's home. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, you've identified three dimensions, which is some jobs are just not physically possible. And then the other two are jobs in which it is possible, but it still doesn't make sense given the specific task that the person has to do, right? Like a manager that has to supervise a team of... 15 people, they probably who's have a deadline that needs to be achieved. It might be hard to do it all remotely, but somebody who's writing creative copy for a marketing ad, you know, maybe they could do, I'm just making it up. They could probably do it remotely because then you have to also look at personality. Maybe that creative person needs to be next to other creative people before they can create something cool. That was Munir Manvawala, Professor of Management Information Systems, a Milton F. Staffer Senior Research Fellow, and the Executive Director of the Institute for Business and Information Technology at Temple University's Fox School of Business. Munir and I were speaking in hypotheticals, but let's bring it back to data derived from real-life experiences. I spoke with Natalie Peterson, Associate Professor of Legal Studies at Drexel University's Labau College of Business, Vice President of the Employment Law Section of the Academy of Legal Studies in Business, and Secretary of the Mid-Atlantic Academy of Legal Studies in Business, about what the data shows in regards to working from home and the COVID-19 pandemic. COVID has certainly seemed to have more of an impact on working mothers. I think something like 25% of working mothers have children under 14 living with them. And that we're seeing that full-time working mothers, and I believe this was even before the pandemic, but full-time working mothers tend to put in about 50% more towards childcare than full-time working fathers, right? So they're both sort of working the same amount or roughly the same amount. And then we have, I think, you know, what sociologists would call this sort of second shift where, The one parent, usually the mother, not always, comes home in a two-parent household and is doing all of the childcare and the housework and all of those things after working a full day. I think COVID just really exacerbated those things. So I'm not sure that COVID really was the root cause of any of these issues, particularly for women in the workplace, but, but for working parents. But it certainly exacerbated them to the extent that we see more women opting out than men, right? So you had sort of this confluence of, Women tend to be the the primary caretaker. And then 
women are either women tend to be more concentrated in low paying jobs, which also tended to need to be in person more. So during the pandemic, so there was this choice of, and then schools shut down, right? So you have this choice of like, how do I watch my children and work? Or even if I'm lucky enough to be able to stay remote, how do I balance all of that, right? Because now I'm, I'm homeschooling and I'm working and I have all of this housework in addition to this. And how do you make it work? And we just saw women opting out more readily, I think, than men because the burnout was just there. It was feeling impossible, I think, for some women to make all of these things work. So, and then put together with the closure of daycare centers, right? And potentially not all of them reopening, that this could be a fairly long lasting problem. And I think so many people on so many dimensions felt that COVID put them in impossible situations, but the working and employment aspect of it was certainly one of those. Demystify diversity, making work safe for you and me. Shoulder to shoulder, we embark. Invite the light to send the dark. Let's embrace one another. Single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other? Charlotte Burroughs, designated by President Biden as chair of the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, EEOC, on January 20th, 2021, has served as a commissioner of the EEOC for multiple terms and previously served as associate deputy attorney general at the United States Department of Justice, as well as general counsel for civil and constitutional rights to Senator Edward M. Kennedy knows firsthand the ways in which the COVID-19 pandemic and the shifting nature of the American workplace have had detrimental effects to the labor force, including widening the opportunity gap between those with a great deal of privilege and those with more limited resources. Well, I'll start by saying that this pandemic really has been a public health challenge and, of course, an economic challenge, but it's also a civil rights challenge. And it has disproportionately fallen on minorities, women, persons with disabilities, and so many other vulnerable groups. And so we're watching that really closely because it has serious implications for diversity and equity in workplaces and for the growing problem of inequality in our society. And so at the start of the pandemic, I will say that layoffs and furloughs were largely concentrated in those industries, like if you think about food service and childcare and hospitality, all of those are industries where women are overrepresented. And job losses due to COVID-19 were particularly dire for women and women of color, especially if they had children. And so many women, what we saw in their peak earning years have had to leave the workplace to care for children, parents, or family members who had a disability or maybe contracted COVID experience tells us the longer they were out of that workforce, the more difficulty they're gonna have getting back in. And so we're watching that and have looked at all of our tools to address it. 
The EEOC has released comprehensive reports and resources, and we'll put links to several of those resources in the show notes because it's important for folks to know as much as possible about employee rights and employer responsibilities. We need to make sure that people's civil liberties are not only protected but championed, especially when the needs of today's workforce may be very different than they were just a few short years ago. We spend a lot of time educating employers about how to navigate those civil rights challenges. For instance, folks with disabilities who may not be able to, say, take a COVID-19 vaccine or may need particular kinds of accommodations. How do we help those employers make sure they know how to navigate that? We have been constantly updating a publication that's on our website as well called What You Should Know about COVID-19. And that is both for employees and employers to understand rights and responsibilities under all of our statutes. In particular, we've seen issues around religious accommodations, around accommodations for disabilities really come up, but also right around Equal Pay Day in March, came up with a COVID-19 caregiver guidance to make sure that as we are reopening and really sort of looking forward with respect to the pandemic, more workers coming back, we wanted to make sure employers understood that discriminating against people who have caregiving responsibilities could violate our laws. For instance, if you have stereotypes about those who may be caring for young children or who may have to be out of the workplace because of a, an adult's relative who needs care. So we wanted to get in front of that by really educating and also encouraging employees to know, hey, I've got some rights here. And when they could come to the EEOC and raise those issues, if in fact they saw that in their employment chances as they tried to get back in the workplace. One of the identity cohorts whose members broadly report beneficial outcomes as a result of increased remote work opportunities has been individuals with disabilities. Here's Sabrina again. Through kind of remote work, organizations have inadvertently, I I don't know if that's the right word, but unlocked a group. And specifically right now, I'm talking about individuals with disabilities that have been one of the most untapped group of human resources with great things to offer to organizations, but companies have been unwilling to make jobs remote or more flexible or more hybrid or so people can manage their disabilities and their personal needs and also contribute what they have to so many things to give to organizations, but it might be more beneficial if it looks a little bit differently. And Wow, all of a sudden overnight, when everything shut down, you know, in March of 2020, we were able to figure that out really dang quick how to put things remote and how to slightly alter things where and in, employees were 100% meeting their job descriptions and the needs of the organization, but doing it in slightly different ways via Zoom, you know, online, things like that. And wow, all I can say is I hope some of these lessons we've learned about how remote work has changed the experiences, you know, the three examples I gave, and and I know there's more. Wow, you know, like, let's put some of those lessons into our policies and procedures and what's here to stay. So we can be more inclusive of 
the great employees with the great potential and the great things they're doing for our organizations. Let's include that more. We know how we should have been doing it a while ago. We've learned our lesson, hopefully. And I hope that policies and procedures and more official ways of going about how we structure our workplace have taken note of how some of those changes have, for the positive, impacted some of our employees. Elizabeth Smith, a graduate of Rollins College who double majored in music and communications and is currently participating in the Accelerate Graduate Studies program to obtain a Master of Public Health degree by 2024, is a disability advocate and researcher who spoke about her experiences with remote work and what her research showed about how remote work has enabled many individuals with disabilities to attend to their needs while optimizing their contributions and feeling connected in situations where they might have previously been excluded, either due to inaccessibility or to identity-based discrimination. So when the pandemic happened, I was looking for opportunities to get more involved because now everything is virtual. I don't have to deal with expending my energy being on campus that, hey, now if there's something that I want to do, you can just log on and be a part of it. The first thing that I did was a fellowship that was based in Uganda and Rwanda. And this was over the summer. It was a five-week program with the Global Livingston Institute. And I got to be in small groups with other students looking at kind of developing the the program that they gave me was um, the I Know Concert Series. And so we were looking at how to make their concert series better. And so that was supposed to help raise awareness about I Know My Status for HIV. And so we were looking Mm -hmm. at how to make that even more successful. But we also had almost every weekday we were online with different professionals that were all over the world, including from Uganda and Rwanda. And we were speaking and learning a lot from these different professionals. And it was, this was the first time that I was virtual. I didn't have to pretend that I had a disability. I didn't have a disability. I was just myself in the space. And I would write in the chat. I would unmute. I would talk. I was very engaged. And there was no pushback from people with if they wanted to talk to me or interact with me. It was just that was the first time I had that experience. And that was what started this idea of why is there's this divide is kind of what started that in my mind. Elizabeth's question, why does there have to be this divide, prompted her to embark on a research project in which she set out to better understand the experiences of other students with disabilities learning in a remote environment. The research that we were looking to answer was when we're in this virtual environment, how has it impacted students with disabilities? Has it created additional barriers or has it made things more accessible? And so that was the route we went. And it was over the summer of 2021 when we, we interviewed 16 students that have disabilities that were in college during the pandemic shift. And so one of our participants, uh, I have a quote here, she said, quote, it was like for once, maybe I was in the same spot as everyone else. We were coming from a place of commonality. And so we, we left this place of where everyone else, like to us, it feels like a lot of people 
they're going about their day, but we are always trying to make it there. And, you know, we're, we have these challenges we're facing every day, but now that we are all home, we're all virtual and we're all facing challenges, there was this shift to now we're all going through this together. Sure, Elizabeth was specifically looking at student populations, but the findings translate to employment as well. In taking a we're all in this together perspective, employers and employees can work to structure expectations in ways that benefit individuals and the organizations they work for. In fact, employers who successfully and compassionately integrate remote work opportunities can maximize employee contributions while also increasing their job satisfaction. These past few years have really illuminated how important it is to care for our health. The place where I go for all my health and wellness supplements is Vita Supreme. Vita Supreme uses all organic ingredients and has a wide range of supplement options that can help with immune support, heart health, energy, mental health, pain relief, sleep, anti-aging, digestion, diabetes, and more. Their products have helped me reduce joint pain and increase vibrancy. And if you read their online testimonials, you'll find glowing endorsements from their customers who at every age and stage of life are feeling better than ever. Vita Supreme believes that health radiates from the inside out, and I can tell you from personal experience that their supplements have made a positive difference in my life. To receive 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. Your discount will be applied at checkout. There's no code required. Also, as a special offer with your first order, you can receive a free 15-minute coaching session with one of their wellness experts to find out more about what you can do to improve your health and your habits. Just send your name and preferred contact information to support at vitasupreme.com. Once again, to get 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. And to receive your free coaching session, email support at vitasupreme.com and tell them the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. Through innovative and dynamic educational initiatives, Temple University's Fox School of Business provides students with real-world, local, and global business opportunities. At the Fox School of Business, you can choose from a wide range of undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs. Whatever your academic and professional path, you'll learn practical strategies for workplace success at a university that is committed to encouraging and respecting diversity in all forms and perspectives. The Fox School of Business, which includes the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, has built an inclusive, welcoming environment where everyone is emboldened to reach their full potential. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu slash DDP for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workplace. 
So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu ddp for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workforce with options for students and professionals at every stage of life, including undergraduate, graduate certificate, and continuing educational programs, the Fox School of Business has something just right for you. So make sure to check out fox.temple.edu ddp to learn more. According to Riverbed.com, remote workers are 35 to 40 percent more productive, and 77 percent of executives report that allowing employees to work remotely reduces overhead operating costs. Here's Munir again. Many large companies have figured out that they can actually save a lot of money in real estate with hybrid work. So actually, that may be a a win-win there for both large companies as well as for working professionals with young kids, that hybrid work, which was kind of seen as career suicide X years ago, companies will work hard to figure out a way to make it work because there's an economic incentive. And, And the new generation wants it anyway. Hybrid work, a working arrangement where employees have the flexibility to work in home and at the office, is done differently at different organizations. Some employers give their employees the choice to make their own schedules. Others designate standard on and off days. Approaches aren't cookie cutter. But however they're navigated, findings show that a hybrid model can offer the best of both worlds. By enabling workers to be both on and off site, the hope is that employers can increase employee satisfaction and retention while continuing to foster rich workplace relationships to promote better collaboration and to prevent isolation. Joyce Jelks, known personally and professionally as JJ, is the head of people and culture at Wyden and Kennedy, New York, an Army major, the chief founding member relationship engagement manager for Sean Johnson, and founder of Ottawa Park HR Advisory. JJ shared with me why she's chosen to adopt a hybrid work structure for her team at Wyden and Kennedy. I think when you're completely remote, you have to be intentional about those connections and intentional about like the coffee chats, right? Because when I go to the office on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and this is just from my perspective, I'm able to like swing by somebody's desk and be like, hey, how you doing? And then that moment I can go to the next person like, hey, how are you? Like I saw your picture with your family, you know, during Christmas or I saw, you know, your ski trip. It looked great, blah, blah, blah. And I can do that in a matter of 10 minutes as opposed to like one 10 minute Zoom another 10 minute Zoom, we can't get on the right link, I drop or there's bad connection. It's like, you don't have any of those things. So that's the difference I feel. But I do like my own space as well, where I can like kind of navigate at home. And as as I'm like thinking about something in my like, I, I started blocking off white space on my calendar, just have like the whiteboard. So during my white space, when I'm thinking, you know, I can like make muffins. So like I'm doing my Weight Watchers muffins while I'm like thinking about what I could be doing creatively. So I do think there's a lot of benefit, but I do realize when I go into the office, I touch more people than when I'm at home because I can't get to everybody in the same manner. Like I think from a human resources perspective, like being with the people and hearing them. And sometimes 
when you get to the person, they'll have a lot to say to you. They're like, oh man, I'm glad you're here. This has been on my mind. As opposed to intentionally scheduling time with HR. So it helps solve problems before they start. It helps give support when it's needed. So yeah, so those are the things that I feel. Some people, they love remote 100%. I feel the value of the hybrid. I love the hybrid. I don't want to be in here every day. I really don't. I <laughs> think two to three days a week, max. Because I've told my team, I said, guys, on a Friday, I will never ask you to come in. Just know that from the jump. Rarely on Mondays, <laughs> unless we have an orientation, you know? Because that flexibility is pretty awesome. People bought dogs and stuff during the pandemic. It's true. According to the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, since the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis, 23 million American households, which amounts to close to one in five, acquired a cat or dog. Of these new pet parents, even after the pandemic was downgraded to an endemic, 90% of dog and 85% of cat owners have kept their pets and are not considering rehoming them. People have completely reoriented their lives, priorities, and schedules and are spending more time at or close to home. That's not to say there weren't many Americans working from home prior to the onset of a global pandemic. So I was very lucky. Months before the pandemic shut down Philadelphia and we had to work remotely, I had asked my boss at, at a Friends General Conference, Barry Crossnow, is it possible for me as you know an accommodation for my disability? Could I work from home one day each week? And I even had like a, I called it work from home Wednesdays, which I thought was really cute at the time. And because I had that experience, I had developed systems for self-soothing and for blocking off my day and scheduling things and staying on top of everything. I was able to seamlessly transition into a full-time work from home position when the pandemic you know, happened in March 2020 in Philadelphia, and we really had to work from home. We didn't have a choice. That was Marta Rusick, a digital storyteller with a passion for helping mission-driven organizations tell their stories. Marta works full-time as a social media strategist for a nonpartisan, pro-democracy, legal nonprofit in Washington, D.C., and she maintains a freelance client roster as a storyteller for hire who uses vulnerability and versatility to amplify important narratives. Emma Bloxberg Fire Ovid, Emma BF, is a speaker, trainer, and leadership coach for women and non binary folks in the technology industry. She's worked with hundreds of leaders to accelerate their careers, maximize their confidence, and amplify their impact. I've been full time remote since 2018. I was working at that tech company doing tech consulting before. So it really set me up for success in my business because I was used to like training and managing and leading from a remote space. So we just kept that going. Cameron Footman is the first voice of Indigipedia.ca, a lifelong entrepreneur and technology advocate and the founder of Woodcrest Construction, a contracting company which specializes in welding and steel fabrication with a focus on heated furniture and art metalworks. Even before the pandemic, I was focusing less on custom projects for people's homes and, and more on furniture and something that I can ship. Um, so I'm thankful my wife works for Shopify, so she does a lot of the back-end website stuff. So I was already kind of in the process of transitioning before the pandemic, just because I saw the 
the huge potential for targeting clients instead of having one good client, you know, the potential for millions of clients online was kind of appealing to me. And then there were those like my mother, Sunny Taylor, a decades-long entrepreneur with an at-home accounting practice of a few hundred active clients. She also raised yours truly and is the content editor and creative collaborator for this podcast. Sunny has been working from home since 1983, when I was born, and has done a variety of different jobs out of the house over the past 39 years. I asked her why she made the decision to work from home. Honestly, my one priority was I'm staying home with my child. I am staying home. I'm going to stay at home. And then I was willing to take on different kind of jobs that I could do while I was home. I put that at the forefront. I was unwavering with that and everything else fell into place. In the early 1980s, only 0.7% of the population worked from home. So my mother was very much a pioneer. And as I said, she had a lot of different jobs, all of which she found a way to do from home. I did child care. I found a family who wanted someone every day to take care of their kids, like pick them up from school, you know, keep them for the afternoon and drop them off, have them on the weekend sometimes. And then somehow, I think it was at a softball game, and one of my brother's friends mentioned he needed a copy editor. And I've always been pretty good at editing. So at night, he would come by my house, drop off his work for the day. And I would sit there at night after you had gone to sleep and do some copy editing. And then he would pick it up. I'd leave it in the door. He'd pick it up at six in the morning on his way to work. So for me, it was just like, again, what could I do to be home with my daughter? And it was funny because when you were about to enter kindergarten, and I knew I didn't need to be home the five or six hours you were at school. I told family members, I'm going to get a job where I just work when Dara's at school. And when she has a day off, I have a day off. And if she has a week off, I have a week off. And they told me I was crazy and I, I would never find that job. But back in the day, we had newspapers. And when I looked at the classified ads, and I called probably 20 different job ads for part-time office help. 19 of them hung up on me when I told them what I was looking for. But one guy went for it. And he was a small little CPA firm. And it worked for both him and me. He didn't have to pay me the days I didn't go. And it was wonderful. It was great. Having been raised by a mother who always had an at-home office and who structured her work life in non-traditional ways, I had a lot of positive modeling that has helped me to navigate blending my personal life with my professional passions. But many people haven't had that example. And when they found themselves thrust into a work-from-home situation, they panicked. Here's Emma again. I was getting calls from people, my friends, on a bus. I had one friend, she was on a bus when the pandemic shut down and she was on the bus with her work desktop computer. And this was in the first week of shutdown. She's on the phone with me and she's like, oh, you got you to gotta send me a picture of what your, what your home office looks like because I know you've had it for years and now I got to figure out what I'm doing. For those of us who need some pointers about how to work remotely, effectively, it might help to hear from those who've been doing it for a while. What I told people from the beginning of the pandemic is your whole routine has to change. Like my whole life had to change when I moved to full-time remote. And this was without a pandemic, right? But I had to be very intentional of when I was leaving the house how many times a day would I leave the house? Where would I go for my exercise? Where would I go for social interaction? 
I had to very clearly identify name and schedule the gaps that for me as an extrovert, like I needed to fill. So I was clear I needed a space for movement. I needed a space for social connection. I needed space with nature and fresh air. And I needed fully disconnected time, not walking while listening to a podcast or not walking and talking on the phone, like fully disconnected time. For me, what's helped is having routines. I have talked to people who have done remote work and they had great ideas like have a commute, you know, maybe pour some coffee into a to-go mug and walk around the block a few times. And then you come in, you sit down at your desk and, you know, you get started after you've had that quote unquote commute, because now you have a sense of, I am starting my day because I commuted here. And then you could repeat the same thing when it's time to call an end to the day. But having those boundaries where you are establishing, this is when my workday begins. This is when I take breaks. And this is when the workday is going to conclude is monumentally important, especially for someone like me. There's something in the autism community called autistic inertia. And what that basically means is it can be really hard to start something. It can also be really hard to stop a particular task that you're working on. One example that I point to is when I was a film student, I was working on an editing project and I realized that, oh, I've been working eight hours straight and I have not gone to the bathroom, taken a break, eaten lunch, fed myself. So it is really important to have very clear start and end times so that I am practicing self-care and I'm not developing the potential for burnout. I would encourage people to really set good boundaries. And one thing I would say, I do work from home. However, I have an office space. So when I'm in my office, I'm working. When I'm not working, I'm not in my office. So if I'm in the den or the watching TV or eating, I'm not in my office. I also think some small little pointers are really important. I have caller ID. Well, let me back up a little bit. I do not give anyone my cell phone. My cell phone is for my tenants. If there's an emergency, some family members don't have it. None of my clients have my cell phone and it's a beautiful separation. So if I am not in my house, they cannot get me. They don't need me. I'm not an emergency room doctor. I don't have to be on call. And I also train my clients. I had one woman, she called me on a Monday morning. She's like, oh, I emailed you a few days ago and I didn't hear back. And I'm like, oh, you mean last night when you emailed me? And I just said, wow, I haven't trained you very well. Most of my clients know if I get back within two or three days, I'm doing well. I don't jump through hoops like that. I can't. I don't, if someone calls me April 15th because they haven't filed their taxes, I really try not to let my clients make me crazy. And they'll learn that first year, they won't wait till April 15th the next year. So I think it's really important. So I don't give anyone my cell phone. I have really good boundaries around that. And I think that's really, really important. So when I am home and not working, I do feel like I'm off. But people really, I really highly recommend the boundaries. Hey, listeners, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And I wanted to share with you some of the great things we're doing in the DEI space. Since the beginning of 2020, myself, Darylise, and our DEI team have facilitated numerous corporate trainings, engaging workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more, both virtual and in person. To find out how you can work with us, whether you are an individual or representing an organization, school, 
corporation, or any other type of group seeking diversity, equity, and inclusion education, head over to demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash DEI services to send us a message or to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 300 people, becoming a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your productivity, profitability, and interpersonal relationships. So connect with us at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash DEI services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And don't forget the workbook, too. Happy learning. There's no denying that it's generally a lot easier for those who are already professionally established to create and maintain healthy boundaries than for those who are just starting out or those who fear unemployment or underemployment if they say no to a particular client or employer. Certainly at the onset of COVID-19, when anxieties were heightened and work opportunities seemed scarce, many people felt desperate to hold on to their jobs. But more recently, the United States reached a record-breaking 11.5 million job shortages. By and large, employers have become the ones in the more vulnerable position. But it wasn't that way back in the early days of the pandemic. Having said that, there are those who launched successful businesses during the pandemic or transitioned from on-site to off-site employment without skipping a beat. Jackie Lipton is a law professor at the University of Pittsburgh, an attorney, a literary agent, and the author of numerous academic texts. Jackie also authored Law and Authors, a Legal Handbook for Writers, which is a must-read for authors looking to know their rights, increase their self-advocacy skills, and understand the intricacies of the publishing industry. Jackie founded her literary agency, Raven Quill Literary Agency, right at the start of the pandemic, and she recently transitioned to agenting at the Tobias Literary Agency. We set up in at the very end of 2019, which was right as the pandemic was about to descend upon us. So my agency has never really operated outside pandemic situation, which means that we've had some advantages because we're virtual and we have always been virtual and none of us live in New York, which is the heart of the publishing industry. But a lot of the people in the publishing industry are no longer in offices. So the things that we were worried about losing, those opportunities to have regular coffees and lunches with editors, ended up really not mattering. I think the industry was going in this direction anyway, but the pandemic really made it happen faster. Rachel Lyons, the executive director at Space for Humanity, a nonprofit organization which aims to make spaceflight available as a way to expand human perspectives, the former vice chair of the board of directors of Students for the Exploration and Development of Space USA, and my cousin, started working remotely in the spring of 2020 and has thrived with the transition. COVID hit two years ago and I haven't left my home office since. So (laughs) I go to the physical location once in a while, but my whole team's remote and it's really nice for me to work from home and I've found a way to make it work. Yeah. Well, tell me about that because not everyone has. (laughs) I think people who are listening might be like, oh my gosh, how do you navigate working in this digitalized space? Everyone has their own challenges in it, I would say. For me, it was like when a recent theme was me looking and seeing where am I 
wasting my energy? Like, where am I putting energy that I don't need to be putting my energy when really what I'm dedicated to is like myself, my work, my closest relationships. And I just was like, okay, like one of the things, for example, which is me being like, I like wouldn't schedule when I was going to the gym. And so then all day I'd be like, when am I going to the gym? When am I going to the gym? And then be like, what I, can I squeeze it in there? Can I squeeze it in there? And then I would have to like shuffle around meetings once in a while. And like, it always takes longer than I planned. And you know, it's like that kind of stuff. So I ended up like making a schedule being like, okay, this is my schedule for the day. This is the time that I'm going to move my body. And I'm a little lenient. Like sometimes it's like, actually, I want to sleep 30 minutes more and I'm not going to work out before I start work. And that's fine. But I think for me, it's like committing myself to a structure. That's been really, really good for me. In the absence of boundaries, self-care and intentionality around remote work, many people experience overwork and overwhelm, which can balloon into burnout. Elizabeth, Liz, Taylor, an assistant professor in the Sport and Recreation Management Department at Temple University School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, whose work examines gender discrimination, homophobia, sexual harassment, and assault within the athletic industry, has done a lot of work examining cultures of abuse, as well as how workplace expectations of employee engagement can lead to burnout. Speaking specifically about burnout, I would say there's two camps that folks are in. So obviously, when you work in an office and you get to leave your house, there is a physical boundary, right, like between you and your workspace. And the essentially getting rid of the boundaries was creating more burnout. And then on the other side, so we just finished data collection on this project where we interviewed 25 athletic department employees and their partners. And something that a number of partners said is that this work from home has allowed their partners who had been workaholics and traveled on the weekends and worked long hours and late nights to be home more and do things that they had never done before. So they were cooking meals and helping with the dishes and getting to be with their kids or their families in ways that they had never been able to do that before because they were home more often. And so if they didn't have a meeting from two to three or three to four, or, you know, when competitions got canceled, they didn't have as many weekend or night obligations. And so they were really getting to interact with their family in ways that they had never gotten to do that before. And so I think in some regards, it was really, really great for people's work-life balance and their, their well-being because they were getting to engage in ways that they had never done and getting to, to take part in things that they had never taken part in before, even something as small as cooking dinner or cleaning the house or doing something like that, that had always been the responsibility of their partner. Liz told me that while many partners were excited to have their significant other at home more, many of those she surveyed felt ambivalent about the transition to working from home. They told her they loved being able to partake in more activities with their families, but they craved escaping to a workplace and they missed in-person interactions with colleagues. They said that at times working from home made them feel like they always had to be on because now they were expected to do more at home while also maintaining rigorous, if shifting, work obligations. I asked Emma BF how she works with her clients to prevent against burnout. The number one tool is mindset because none of the burnout tools are going to work until you internally know, believe, and feel your own self-worth. That's when I see when women come in 
and they work on their mindset and they're clear on who they are, what they care about, what their vision is, and what values underlay every decision, emotion, action that they take. Then it's from that place that we move into those external burnout tools, like setting clear boundaries, turning off the computer, playing and sleeping more, connecting with friends. All of that external work, which is super important, it doesn't have the same level of impact until the internal beliefs and identity reflect that. Whether you're a remote worker looking to prevent against burnout or an employer wanting to promote employee well-being while retaining company culture, it's important to reiterate that remote work is not always optimal. For instance, Amanda Arias, Director of People and Culture at Jubilee Media, who prior to her current position accumulated more than 10 years of experience helping growth-centric startups build high-performing teams, operates from the motto, treat people like people. And she told me that when they moved to remote work, Jubilee Media initially struggled to maintain company cohesion and culture. And for clarity's sake, when Amanda references Jason, she's speaking about Jason Lee, founder and CEO of Jubilee. We started off so small where I think that a lot of folks who joined Jubilee were were fans and, and really close to our mission. And then, you know, through the pandemic, we grew quite a bit. And to be honest, and I think Jason's really honest about this, we struggled during the pandemic. This was before I joined the company, but there was a, a lack of connection for new employees. There was sort of a lack of direction and it really, it hit our culture pretty hard and we've worked really hard to get back to where it is. And it's been really beautiful to kind of see it it all come together again. I'm so curious, why was it a struggle in a remote work environment? So we have a really young team, people who are really early in their careers. Most of our team is made up with folks who either did some freelancing on the side or just came out of college. And so with that, there was a lack of training. There was a lack of understanding of, hey, this is how we operate within a workplace in a remote sense, right? And so for us, I think there was just a lot of communication gaps that existed. There was a lot of a lack, I should say, of collaboration uh, that was coming forth. And so through that, people felt disconnected and they felt unheard at times. And so when I joined in December, you know, I met with every single employee on the team and I told them, I want to know everything, the good, bad, the ugly, why you love working here, why you hate working here. And we went through every single thing. And I sat down with our leadership team and, you know, I had a tough conversation about holding ourselves accountable for the mistakes that we made. And we shared that openly with our team. I think being vulnerable also means being really transparent about where you mess up and not hiding from that, not pretending like things didn't happen, not pretending like you dropped the ball on something, but really owning up to it and just saying, Hey, we messed up. And we're aware of it and we're working on it. And we want to solicit your feedback. If there's still something we're not doing, tell us what we don't know we can't fix. And this is a safe environment for you to do so. And so we've really cultivated that over the last three months, I would say. According to an article on Site Pro News, there are at least 13 downsides to remote work. Those are 
isolation, decrease in work-life balance, distractions, employee invisibility, collaboration challenges, video call fatigue, lack of coworker relationships, more meetings, greater stress, contributing to gender inequity, less personal connection and trust, it's easier to be sedentary, conflict can go unaddressed longer, and technical issues. I can attest to technical issues. For instance, during the course of my interview with Liz, our Zoom connection cut out and we had to switch over to the phone, so you might notice a difference between the audio quality of some of her clips. Having said that, working from home can lead to wonderful moments as well, like this one when Cameron's dad walked in during our Zoom interview. Hello. (laughs) My dad just... Love it. (laughs) The the Zoom bomb. It's great. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I love, I just always love like seeing people working from home. Or this other endearing and ironic moment which occurred when Marta and I were speaking about accessibility and her mother interrupted our interview because she just happened to need to use her stair lift. Marta and I paused our question and answering so the noise of the stair lift wouldn't interfere with our interview. Speaking of accessibility, my mom has a really wonderful stair lift that helps take her up and down the stairs when she needs it. But uh, I'm working out of her house today because I like to be around her and my nephew when I do my work one day a week so that I'm able to be connected with them and spend time with them while I'm doing my thing. So that's so nice. Yeah. So she's almost up at the top of the stairs. As Marta shared, working from home can enable us to spend more time with our loved ones. It can also make it possible for caregivers to do their work while tending to their at-home responsibilities. For instance, the transition to selling his work online enabled Cameron to be there for his wife's dialysis treatments, then to recuperate from surgery after donating one of his kidneys to his partner. Sure, Cameron may be an entrepreneur, but there are many organizations that provide their employees with the flexibility and freedom to attend to their personal lives without sacrificing professional support or solidarity. For instance, Kelly Clark, Chief Culture Officer at Aon United, who directs the firm's strategies for inclusive people leadership and culture initiatives, and who played a pivotal role in scaling Aon's signature cultural workshop, leading Aon United to reach more than 800 colleagues virtually while maintaining more than 98% positive feedback, told me about how she's navigated remote work while supporting her colleagues in meeting their personal and professional needs. So I've been working at home, you know, I have two kids at home, my wife is home, my dog is at home, the neighbors stop by. And so I have the normal distractions that everybody has when they're working in a home environment. But what I'll say about the pandemic is that one, I wish we wouldn't have had to experience as a human population. But since we have, what I feel like we can take from it is this idea that it's okay to show a little bit of our humanness. It's okay if my dog barks. It's okay that my two-year-old doesn't want to go down for his nap. It's great that my neighbor wanted to come by today. It's okay that my plant is wilty because I forgot to water it. And it's okay that I'm curling my daughter's hair while I'm talking to my team about the priorities for the week because that's my real life. And I think 
before we were living in this virtual world, we kind of wanted to live in two worlds almost like my work persona and my home persona and work and life. And I was balancing those two. And I think we've just been forced to get much more comfortable with them being totally integrated. What that means though, is that it, it challenges us in a way that I don't think we're used to being challenged in that I have to have boundaries because I'm working at home and I'm living at work all of the time. And then you add the technological component to that. And it's like, my phone's dinging, my I am is lighting up, somebody's texting, somebody's calling. I'm on a camera for 10 hours a day. And what does that mean? And then what are my needs? What are my own well-being needs given all of those things that play all of the time? <laughs> Go ahead. No, I mean, I was just like, right. So you perfectly encapsulated the issue, but like, how do you manage that personally? Yeah. And then also how do you sort of manage that for your team? Yeah. Being intentional. So I think that's, that's the core of what I would say. So at Aon, I could take this macro to like humanity, but then at Aon and then on my team and then for me personally. So awareness, I think is the macro thing. Like we've been forced to be more aware as human beings about what is going on in our worlds. At Aon, we have been intentional about learning that actually we had our best financial performance last year in all of Aon history. And that's very public. And we talked about it in our earnings call just recently. So there's something there to tell you like, wait a minute, if we can all be virtual and still have our best year, what there's things going on in the organization that are contributing to that. And so we're intentional about figuring out what were the things that worked was it the bringing together of this idea of Aeon United and that we got better at, about that? Were we spending more time doing work than we were commuting or traveling or going back and forth from the office to home? And the idea isn't that you do more, it's that you get smarter. And so our policy is called smart working. And what we're working on is getting comfortable as an organization with the idea that colleagues do their work in the places that make sense for them. There is an increasing awareness that different ways of working support different people in different circumstances. And as a result, American workplaces have needed to develop more dynamic policies and procedures. Stephanie Gantman Kaplan, who asked me to call her Steph, is a labor and employment attorney and partner at Blank Rome. Steph was listed in the 2020 Philadelphia Business Journal as Best of the Bar, Employment Litigation. Her professional expertise extends to all areas of labor and employment law, including helping organizations to be intentional about implementing policies that seek to increase employee satisfaction while being governed by laws and best practices. Companies are taking vastly different approaches to what does return to the physical office look like. You know, everything from you can be remote and work anywhere you want all year to you can have flexible days or weeks or months, but need to be in the office on a hybrid basis to full return to the office. And with each of those different circumstances comes important policy decisions to be considering uh, from an insurance perspective, right, from a taxes perspective, 
from a what state law actually applies to these people and therefore needs to go into the handbook. So it creates these complicated, interesting, and kind of cutting edge issues that I'm happy to help companies work through and I think makes my work really engaging and rewarding. It's helpful to think not about going back to what was, but moving into new possibilities. And while it helps to be informed by the past, we shouldn't necessarily allow the past to dictate our present. Here's Elizabeth Smith again. In our research, when we were doing it, another factor that we all talked about was this threat of returning to normal and how normal in itself is not inherently like there's not a a true normal. And so we were all kind of a lot of people were afraid, like, what is it going to look like when I'm going back in person? And it seems like during the pandemic, professors were more open and more understanding when things were challenging. Well, that grace period is over. We need to go back to the way things were. And so that was a theme that we found and something that we didn't take lightly. And we wanted to to think about how can we create a more accessible and inclusive environment Hey, listeners, Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you've tuned in to season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. You probably know by now that we've partnered with Temple University's Fox School of Business to bring you this special season dedicated to DEI in the workplace. With that in mind, we ask that you send us your work-related DEI questions by calling 844-888-8148. Just leave a message with your question. Or send us a note through our website, www.demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. As always, we'll be joined by some amazing guest experts and thought leaders who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. Again, the number is 844-888-8148 or message us through our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question may just make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Happy listening. Alexi Altunin, Assistant Professor of Management Information Systems at Temple University's Fox School of Business, has over 20 years' experience in digital innovation, both as an academic and an entrepreneur. Here's what he told me. The pandemic has been a horrible thing. Lots of people have died, so let's not kind of, there is no question about it. And that, that shouldn't stop us from seeing the things what we have learned, how we have learned to operate with all these tools. Sometimes, actually, I like, for instance, some school meetings to take place. I'd rather sit here and watch them through the screen than go into the room. Some things work just better on the screen. Or in teaching, I don't see this as a sort of different forms of delivering the same content. Some content works better online, some content works better in the classroom, and some content works better for some students online and some students in classroom. Having said that, the irony here is that because we are more and more aware that everything that goes into this digital system is recorded somewhere, or it can be recorded, that actually makes the physical co-location incredibly important also. Because there are always those discussions that we don't want to be have recorded. So that's why geography will still matter, because people need to meet face to face, because there are things that discussions that we want to have for good reasons without them being recorded in some systems. 
We'll always need situations where we can be face-to-face, and we'll always need to ensure that modifications and accommodations are possible. Alexi suggested we do our best to learn from the pandemic, which is what Chair Burroughs and the EEOC have sought to do. We are still trying to take the best of what we learned and continue it and also recognize where we really have to show up physically for folks. And I think the two big takeaways have been we found that we could be more flexible with respect to telework. This was always an agency that had a fairly large number of folks who were engaged in telework and valued that. But we saw, okay, there's some things we can do remotely. For instance, our mediations, that we were really successful in doing remote mediations. And there were some benefits, like, for instance, some folks had to travel really far. Well, they didn't have to do that. Or sometimes in a mediation, you're going back and forth between parties, right? And waiting for the other party to say yes or no to your offer. Well, before the pandemic, people would sit in our offices and wait and get bored and try and figure out what they should do. If you didn't travel, but you're doing it online, you can keep the computer up, but multitask maybe while you're doing that. You don't pay for parking to come into our offices. So that had been a benefit. On the other hand, There are, and I think for a very long time in the future will always be folks who really can't reach us except in person. And we are very cognizant of that too. So there are folks who maybe can't do a mediation remotely because they don't have the tech or they'd have to be doing it at a public library or some other place where maybe they don't have the privacy or the resources. So they can come into our offices. They can come into our offices to file a charge. So we are trying to take the very best of what we learned during the pandemic, the additional technological capabilities and the flexibilities that we learned, while also making sure that we remain as accessible as possible to the people who need us most. And that means also having a physical presence. I asked Munir how his work has shifted with the move to remote work and what he's observed as a result of the move to virtual learning. That's an easy answer, which is, you know, online learning is good for a small segment of the population. It's not good for most of the population. And this is somebody who's a technologist who loves gadgets. I have no reservations in saying that. So the sooner we can get back to normal, the better off everybody will be. That's not to say it's, there are master's degrees that offer opportunities to people who are stuck in some rural area who can't access a university. That's a great service to society, that online degree. But for the majority of the population, I don't think it works well. Can you say a little more about why that is? I'm an academic. We could talk about this the whole one hour. (laughs) But I guess the short answer is human engagement. And engagement has many different facets. I mean, the simple one is the socializing part. But, But somebody would say, well, I'm not here to socialize. I'm here to learn something, right? But engagement is, I think, more nuanced than that in the sense that there's motivation. And even though somebody may say that they're not social, at the end of the day, we are all social animals and we are motivated by the people around us. So that's another small piece of it is if you're in an impersonal Zoom meeting with 50 people, it's very easy to ignore them and check your email. Now, you could still ignore your classmates in a real classroom and check your phone secret, which many students do. But it's a little harder and most likely what you'll be doing, let's say you're a stereotypical undergraduate, 
And maybe you'll check your phone, but then maybe you'll send a text message to somebody sitting next to you. So there is all this engagement part, which is part and parcel of the higher education experience that gets lost or doesn't get lost. It's, the technology is not good enough to duplicate it. Maybe mm. it will be, but it's not even close right now. Sure. It's easy to check email during a large, boring online meeting or to tune out during a webinar. But even if we are having interactive and engaging online meetings that allow for greater productivity and efficiency, most of us require some level of in-person human interaction. But that's not to say we have to get those interactions at work. In fact, for some, less time at work means more productivity and more freedom to socialize with family and friends or pursue their own interests outside of work. After all, for many people, remote work helps streamline their professional processes and maximize their output. Here's Sunny again. I think more and more companies are really realizing that they have to accommodate. I also think with COVID, people have realized, companies have realized that they can still get a lot of productivity out of people. Productivity at home can be greater than productivity in a shared physical location. But there are certain things that even those of us who thrive working remotely may still choose to do or have to do on site. Here's Cameron again. There's still a lot of in-person stuff that I do have to do. You know, I do take on like kind of cooler projects. Like uh, I did a, a giant fireplace for this multi-million dollar high park home with a high fidelity sound system tucked behind. I did a 25 foot long, very modern pond for another client of mine in the annex. I think there's certain things I can't do digitally, like the actual work, but I feel like, you know, having a wider net And somewhere to showcase my portfolio pieces allows me to pick those more fun clients and, you know, the cooler projects. In addition to the work Steph does in employment and labor law, she also does pro bono child advocacy work, something that, while not exactly fun, is infinitely rewarding. She told me that being a child advocate isn't something that can translate over to a digital space. We talked a little bit about how COVID impacted the work that you do with training and with your law firm, but how has it impacted your child advocacy work? Yeah, so those court appearances have largely still been in person, given the nature of the work. So unlike many of my federal court appearances and my employment litigation, these child advocate cases are occurring in person. And these children are even more in need of services now with school shutdowns intermittently, sicknesses, sicknesses of caretakers. There's a whole new host of issues along this population that needs to be addressed. There are a lot of vulnerable populations that COVID-19 has impacted in disproportionate ways. And unfortunately, because so many of their stories have been silenced and their identities invisibilized, we don't hear nearly enough about those individuals' experiences at work or at home. That's why Sylvia Massiero co-edited the open access work, COVID-19 from the Margins, Pandemic Invisibilities, Policies, and Resistance in the Datified Society. The book brings together decolonized narratives of the ongoing global pandemics and shares many previously silent stories. 
Sylvia is an associate professor of information systems at the University of Oslo and the author of more than 20 peer-reviewed works in the domain of information and communication technology for development, affectionately known as ICT4D. We um, recently edited a project. Uh, when I say we, I mean with two of my colleagues, Stefania Milan from the University of Amsterdam and Emiliano Trere from Cardiff University. And we edited a project called COVID-19 from the margins, ended up being a book, an open access book that I encourage all our listeners to download is open access. And it's the full title is COVID-19 from the margins, pandemic, invisibility, solidarity and resistance. And it's a book edited by the um, International Network Cultures at the University of Amsterdam. It's a book that collects, is edited, like I said, 47 contributions in five languages, because we really wanted our contributors to write in the languages they wanted, and that tell the stories of how the pandemic has impacted what, in the introduction, we call the silenced stories of COVID-19. Why silence? Because there was... There, There is a main narrative of COVID-19 that goes with the official numbers, with the statistics, with whatever is seen by state bodies. What stories are not seen? I'll never be able to be exhaustive, but migrants, undocumented migrants, um, gig workers, daily workers who don't have a contract, Um, uh, survivors of domestic violence, uh, uh, ethnic minorities, all those narratives, sex workers, all those narratives that are not seen. And we decided to, first we built a blog, it's still open actually, it's called like the book, COVID-19 from the margins, for people to send us their stories from, uh, we don't speak about global south there, we speak about the souths of the world, of the world as a metaphoric uh, locus of marginalization and, and oppression. We have many contributions actually from the global north, like ethnic minorities in the UK, data journalism in Italy, and so forth. So how has the pandemic impacted these inequalities? In the book, we have five ways, five sections. The first one is about counting. So stories of those, like I said, that are not counted. The second one is called new inequalities and vulnerabilities. So people that, so for example, the gig workers, the workers of the gig economy that have been on the front line, like the food deliverers, the drivers that have been on the front line of the pandemic exposed to the contagion in the highest phases and not always protected. And then a third section is called datafied social policies. And that's uh, the closest to my research about social protection and how people are or are not protected during COVID by the state. The fourth one is a section on data justice, again, so those who are more or less, those people that are more or less fairly represented through data in the pandemic. And the fifth, because we wanted a happy ending, is a section on solidarity. So how technologies that have been used, like social media and so on, let's not forget that the pandemic exploded very close to the Black Lives Matter movement. So, And that was a great occasion to leverage technology to mobilize against oppression and police violence. So the fifth section, which I think is the longest in the book, there's a reason why it's the longest, because there's hope, right? There is hope. But only if whatever types of work we're moving towards make visible those who have been invisibilized and enable greater inclusion and cohesion. 
One thing that has been a beautiful part of the movement towards new ways of working is that it's led to the disruption of the notion that because we've always done it this way, we have to always do it this way. Albeit many companies have only become more open to innovation out of necessity, but the good news is that paradigms around work have shifted, and there's no going back to what used to be the status quo. Here's Natalie again. I think that model of what it means to be sort of a successful worker, COVID, I think, has pushed that to show that at least need to be receptive to the idea that in the past two years, companies just haven't completely fallen apart, right? Most companies have been able to make working from home sustainable. And so what does that look like going forward? How can we learn from this and incorporate and give workers the flexibility that they're seeking? Because I don't think flexibility doesn't mean working less or working less hard, at least, right? It just means being flexible and when you can do things. And so there are certain jobs where maybe that's not an option because you always have to be meeting with people or, but so many jobs, there are those times when you're just doing your own work. And so where do you need to be doing that work? At what times do you need to be doing that work, right? That's something that has been huge for me as a mom that I can work and do my research when the kids go to sleep, right? And so just having that flexibility. So it doesn't mean I'm doing less work. It just means I'm shifting the times and doing it differently. Kelly told me that Aon United had its most profitable year during the height of the pandemic. And she shared some of the ways Aon, a leading global professional services firm that provides a broad range of risk, retirement, and health solutions, has worked to make working remotely beneficial not only for their organization, but also, and according to Kelly, even more importantly, for their employees. So let me tell you just maybe two quick things what we've done that I think are unique and helpful. And you've heard headlines about this from other companies, but we did give colleagues global days off. So it was this idea that we do celebrate regional and cultural celebrations all around the world. But as an organization, we've never had specific days where nobody is working And those days enabled the email traffic to stop, the IMs to stop pinging, and it was very well received by our colleagues. And we started talking about getting better at planning for time off and taking time off and leveraging our teams to cover for us and making sure that people knew where, who was going to be out and when, so that the people who were off actually got to be off. And then we did something creative. We issued stock options to all 50,000 colleagues. And we did this as a one-time stock award, but it has enabled us to kind of go into a whole other arm of well-being and talk about financial planning and financial well-being and what all of that means. And so we've been looking at it kind of across the full spectrum of things and really taking on board colleague feedback and colleague input as we've shaped what we've been doing and then trying to balance this reactive versus proactive, like what can we take and learn from this and and how do we continue to get better as we go forward. As JJ moves forward at Wyden and Kennedy, after conferring with her team, she's implemented a model that I find really attractive. It was interesting that you talked about the hybrid model, which isn't one that I really thought about until coming into this conversation. But that seems like it offers a lot, like a lot 
because you still get the in-person interaction and you also get a little more leeway and freedom. A hundred percent, hundred percent. We come in, you know, Tuesday, Thursdays and, you know, we're cracking jokes and you get the chance to like come over, chat with them, like walk over to the desk and, you know, you get to see like the smiles and then, you know, we may order lunch together to say, Hey, I'm going down to, I don't know, Fresh and Co. Do you want something? It's like that interaction is helpful because I do think that in some way it's nice. It's nice to have that level of camaraderie that you don't always get from a remote environment. Right. And I think it's also individual because some folks are like, I'm good remote forever. And I think for myself, and I looked at it, I was like, the way that I am and the way that I manage is better hybrid. My folks probably don't want to see me every day and I may not want to see them every day. (laughs) So, you know, it's like, we got a little break. So we get to miss each other come in like, Hey, how's it going? What's going on? How you doing? How are the kids? And then I have uh, a couple folks on my team that, you know, they have small kids. So those other days and they can go take their kids to school, walk them, pick them up from school, walk them. And it's like those things that if I had that flexibility with my son, that would have been pretty dope. Cause I wasn't able to do that. Like he would be the first kid in daycare. And sometimes like one of the last to leave, because that was the environment that I was raising him in. And that's not the environment that I want to provide for our staff or like for my direct reports. And then that's one of the things that I think people need to realize. It's like, hey, just because I grew up in that doesn't mean other people should grow up in that because it's not fulfilling. Like I remember I was missing certain school events because I couldn't make it to it. And it would be these things where like, you know, the other mothers, because it's like sometimes the the mother thing to do or in PTAs and all that. I didn't have time for none of that shit. It's <laughs> like, what? I was like, man, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to get them to like soccer on the weekends, basketball on the weekends, right? But like all these volunteer things, bake-offs, like, oh, if my group wants to participate in that, I'm like, have at it. Like, that's not my jam anyway, but hey, go for it. <laughs> do your thing. <laughs> With the movement to new and different ways of working, employees are seeking greater professional and personal fulfillment, and organizations are finding themselves having to make their workplaces as desirable as possible if they hope to recruit and retain talent. After all, these days, 60% of top-ranked companies have some degree of remote work availability, which means that the nature of work is changing. With those changes comes a need to utilize new and innovative technologies. And while the prospect of change can be scary for some, Yulia Barnakova told me that she sees remote work and the new digital landscape as exciting. Yulia is the digital innovation lead for the consulting practice of Hydric and Struggles, a global executive search and leadership advisory firm. She oversees digital dexterity development, and she told me that whatever our personal feelings about being at home versus in the office, we're going to need to learn how to relate in the virtual space if we want to avail ourselves of greater freedom and flexibility, and employers are going to need to do the same. Otherwise, they run the risk of becoming obsolete. Right now, there's this very intense war for talent going on. And right now, when you look at across so many different demographics, I mean, this is age demographics, this is women, POC, other kinds of groups, it is disabilities, of course, 
pretty much everyone across the board, they want flexibility. They want to have wiggle room in how they set their schedule. They want to be able to work from home at least part of the time. There's new caregiving needs. There's been this great realization of just how our lives, our work world and our family life intersect. And some people have wanted to rebalance that going forward. So absolutely, it is critical to be able to do that in a distributed team if you want to get the best people to do the work. Because otherwise, we're seeing people quit or we're we're seeing people you know, have that be as a non-negotiable. If you don't feel included, if you don't feel like you're part of the team, that's an absolute, that used to be kind of the way it was <laughs> before. Now the expectations have risen and it's absolutely not okay going forward. Overall, it would seem that employees want to, at the very least, have the option of working remotely, at least some of the time, while still feeling included and incorporated into their organization's culture. And the employers that manage to provide greater flexibility while retaining a sense of equity and inclusion will be able to draw from a more diverse talent pool. So it's time to let go of what we've known in favor of something new. And while remote work may not be perfect, ideally it would offer workers more freedom and autonomy. And ultimately, that at least offers the potential of a more diverse workforce. Can we move forward differently to foster greater equity? Even if we don't always understand fairness, we can and should demand. Let's embrace one another, single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other through? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. Season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast will center around topics of diversity, equity, and inclusion at work and is brought to you in partnership with Temple University's Fox School of Business Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, Sedwick. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, like us, and take a few minutes to leave a positive review, which helps spread the word about what we're up to. And if you'd like to ask us a question about this episode, any previous episode, or anything having to do with diversity, especially in the workplace, please call 844-888-8148 and leave us a message with your question. Or you can visit our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com, where you can ask us a question, subscribe to our newsletter, and find out more about our DEI services. Thank you to this episode's guests, Shauna Hawking, Sabrina Valpone, Munir Manvoela, Natalie Peterson, Chair Charlotte Burroughs, Elizabeth Smith, Joyce J.J. Jelks, Marta Russick, Emma B.F., Cameron Footman, Sunny Taylor, Jackie Lipton, Rachel Lyons, Liz Taylor, Kelly Clark, Steph Gantman-Kaplan, Alexi Altunin, Sylvia Massiero, Yulia Barnakova, and Amanda Arias, and to our episode sponsor, Vita Supreme.
every episode of this season of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Lise Lyons, with Azaria Keys, Assistant Director of Sedwick, Co-Producer and Coordination Consultant, Leora Eisenstadt, Sedwick Director, Assistant Producer and Consultant, Zach James, Co-Collaborator and Marketing Manager, Paul Kondo, Assistant Producer and Editor, Jimmy Goodman at Leopard Studio, Audio Technician and Consultant, Stuart Kraintz, Production and Development Assistant, and Sunny Taylor, Content Editor and Creative Collaborator. The music you heard is Demystifying Diversity, an original composition, the lyrics of which were written by me, Dara Lise Lyons, in collaboration with Ramon Beeftink, who also created all the music and performed vocals and instrumentals. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, wherever books are sold. Join us next week for a question and answer episode. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.